So I have been a parent officially for a little over eight years now, and uh, yeah, I don't know anything, absolutely nothing. <laughs> you would think eight years in anything makes you a quasi-expert, or at least moving towards that, not true whatsoever when it comes to parenting. Pretty sure I could be a parent for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, you name it, and you still don't have it all figured out. However, eight years of marriage, I learned something super fast. It did not take me eight years to learn this. I learned this within the first few years, you might even argue the first few days of being a parent. Kids especially don't like being told what to do. You learned that? Are you aware of that? That you tell your kids to do something and they just don't want to. There's not always a good reason. Sometimes there's a good reason. But if I'm telling you to do it, then there's not a good reason. So they don't want to do what they're told to do. Now, here's what's fascinating about that. Typically, typically in life, we outgrow certain things. So from a young child, a toddler, into your adolescent years, we won't talk about those right now, all the way up to young adulthood, into adulthood, usually we outgrow certain things. However, the idea of I don't like being told what to do, we never outgrow that, ever. Let me just give you a couple examples. So here's just a few things that I was trying to pay more attention to it this, this last week. Here's a few things that I was told to do this last week. Wake up. Separately, although connected, get out of bed. Take the dog out. That's a sore subject for you that know me right now. Yeah. Find my soccer shoes. Help me with my homework. Call me when you get this. Pay these bills. Hurry up. Those are just a few things that I have been told to do this last week, and I didn't want to do any one of those. I had no desire to do any of those. I, in fact, I would rather do something totally different, yet we recognize that we are always told what to do, and we also recognize, man, we really don't outgrow that. We don't like our parents telling us what to do. doesn't matter how old you are. You don't like your parents telling you what to do. You don't like your colleagues or your coworkers telling you what to do. You might even have heard the phrase or you might have even said the phrase, you're not the boss of me. But let's be honest, does that actually help? Because you don't like what your boss tells you to do either. So I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And I think I'm almost positive if you're like me, that also transfers over into your spiritual life because we don't like God telling us what to do either. Whatever the reason is, whatever the excuse is, we just plain old don't like people telling us what to do. We're, we're doing a two-part series. We did part one last week. We're going to finish it up today on Joseph's life. Not Joseph, earthly father of Jesus. Joseph, Old Testament, the coat of many colors. That's right. And we have specifically been focusing on the lemons that life has handed Joseph. We noticed last week, if you weren't here, I'll catch you up just briefly, Joseph was despised by his brothers, and despised would be saying it lightly. He was a favorite of his father, thus the coat of many colors. He had a dream that wasn't coming true in his time, so he was disappointed. Lemon number one from last week was disappointment. When life hands you disappointment, what do you do with it? The second one was betrayal. Limit number two is betrayal, especially difficult when it's those people that are closest to you. What do you do when the people closest to you hurt you, intentionally or unintentionally? What do you do when the people closest to you don't meet or match your expectations? 
Because we all know the phrase, when life hands you lemons, what do you do? You make Chick-fil-A lemonade. Don't just say lemonade. You got to make the right lemonade. You got to make Chick-fil-A lemonade or else it's not real lemonade. But we said that that was very difficult and that it requires a perspective shift. And we saw that in the first part of Joseph's story where he was beaten and left for dead. Then he was eventually sold into slavery and experiencing, again, the disappointment and the betrayal. He had a perspective. Instead of asking why, he ended up asking several other questions that adjusted his perspective. That was last week. What I want us to focus on today, we're going to look at the next two lemons of Joseph's life. But I want you to pay attention, more importantly, to the trend of what he does. So lemon number three, I'll tell you, and then we're going to go back and see it in the story. Lemon number three is unfair. He's going to experience things that are not fair. Lemon number four is you're going to see that he was forgotten, completely overlooked, completely forgotten. But here's what I want you to pay attention to as we briefly go through his story, the second part of his story, is what does he do when he is treated unfairly? When life said, here's the lemon of unfairness, what does he choose to do? When life hands him the lemon of being forgotten and overlooked, what does Joseph choose, keyword choose, to do, because yes, his perspective, like we talked about last week, is a big deal, but what you're going to notice, and I want you to see this trend of him doing what's right, even when he didn't feel like it, for doing what's right, even when he was handed a lemon. There's a word for that, obedience. Obedience is difficult enough because we just said we don't like people telling us what to do. We feel restricted. We feel like you don't know me. You feel like I can do what I want. I'm, a, I'm an independent person. I'm an adult. I'm going to do what I want when I want it and when I feel like it. Oh, but then God comes into the picture and says, no, here's my way. Here's how I want you to do this. It doesn't matter the situation. It doesn't matter the storm. It doesn't matter the difficulty. It doesn't matter the lemon that you've been handed. Here's how I want you to move forward. Here's what I want you to obey. Here's what an obedient life looks like even when you're handed lemons. And Joseph had a great ability to trust God and obey God no matter the lemon. That's the trend I want you to see. Or if you already believe me, you don't need to see the scripture for yourselves, then you can tune out for the next 40 minutes. Just kidding, it's not gonna be 40 minutes. Some of you got real nervous real fast there, didn't you? 40, he's gonna do 40? No, not really. All right, here's the story. Genesis chapter 39, if you have your Bible, head over there. I want you to see this with me. Here's where we left off last week. Again, left for dead, but then his brothers decided to sell him instead of leaving him for dead because they'd make some money off of him if they actually sold him. Here's what happens after he is sold, and we're gonna see lemons three and four, but look for his obedience. Chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And this is where we ended last week. The Lord was with Joseph. Even in the midst of difficulty, God was still there. So that he prospered and lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and, look, became his attendant. Potiphar, his owner, put him in charge of his entire household and entrusted his, in his care everything he owned. So we would say, based on what Joseph had been going through, things are actually starting to look up. Would you agree? Not if you agree with me. Online, give me a thumbs up if you agree with me. He was beaten, left for dead, sold into slavery, taken to Egypt, but now that he's there, he's still faithful, he's still trusting in God, he's still doing the right things the right way, and Potiphar notices this, see how God is blessing him, and says, well, man, why don't you just run my whole estate? 
for Joseph, that's a step in the right direction. He's not in a pit anymore, and yes, he's still a slave, but at least he has some freedoms and some responsibility. He's doing okay, comparatively speaking. So life starts to look a little bit better, and then something happens because that's what life does, right? As soon as you start to make the lemonade, all of a sudden, here comes some more lemons. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after, after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me, but he refused. So now he's been thrown a temptation. He still decided to do what was right. Don't miss that. That's huge. That's the trend we're looking for. Joseph, even in difficult situations, he still chose to trust and obey God. Verse 11, this escalates. One day, Joseph went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She, this is Potiphar's wife, she caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. I love that. When she saw that, she had his, that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she said, uh-oh, because that doesn't look good, does it? She called her household servants. She was quick on her feet. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Is that true or not? Of course not. No, she found herself in a bad situation. Said, I need to do something to cover this up because this doesn't look good on me. Joseph did what was right refused the first time. When it escalated, he didn't say a thing. I love this. He did not say a thing, and he ran out of the house. Now, our sermon, our message is not based on this, but ears up on this part. That is a perfect example on how you deal with temptation. You run. I mean, literally. He said, I'm not even going to talk about it. I'm not going to try to explain it. I'm not going to figure out what to do. He literally ran so fast and so quick that she was still left holding on to his cloak. He literally left his jacket with her. He says, I'm out. And he took off. Of course, she told a lie that says, no, that's not what happened. In fact, he is the one that came on to me. So, of course, Potiphar believes his wife. Here's what happens. Verse 20, Joseph's master, that's Potiphar, took him and put him in prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. Lemon number three, unfair. That's not fair. I want you to say that with me because I know you've said this a hundred times before, so it's not going to take much practice. You ready? Say it with me. That's not fair. It's not fair because Joseph did everything right. Everything right. He did well for his master. He did what he was supposed to do to the point where he was actually given a lot more responsibilities. And then when he's faced with temptation, he does the right thing. He refuses. I'm not even going to entertain the idea. It's wrong. It's sin. I'm going to have nothing to do with it. He refused. When that sin comes back, when that temptation comes back, which it always does, he didn't have the same response. As the temptation escalated, his response escalated, and he literally took off. Joseph did everything right, and it landed him in jail. That's not fair. Things were looking up for Joseph, and then here comes lemon number three. Unfair. How do we respond when things aren't fair? Rhetorical question, we're going to ask it again in a minute. 
when something happens to you that's not fair. It does something, doesn't it? It's, it's not just a bothersome. It's, it's we have this, for some reason, this kind of internal desire to make things fair, for better or for worse. So Joseph was falsely accused, wrongfully imprisoned. Limit number three, unfair. Chapter 40 tells us what happens next while Joseph is in prison. But he continues to do the right thing, and that's the trend we see. Even though Joseph is in prison, guess what? He continues to do well. He continues to be responsible. He continues to trust God and obey and do the right thing to the point where the warden of the jail says, Joseph, like, do you want to like run the jail? And any prisoner in the right mind says, uh, yes, sir, of course I want to run the jail. <laughs> so here Joseph is basically running the jail as a prisoner. Two new prisoners come in, the chief baker and the chief uh, cupbearer for Pharaoh. Remember, they're in Egypt. Now, I don't know what a baker has to do or a cupbearer has to do to make the king of a nation angry. We, don't, we have no idea, but maybe, he doesn't, maybe Pharaoh doesn't like nuts in his brownies, and the baker accidentally put nuts on the brownies, and now he's in jail too. Who knows? But both the baker and the cupbearer are in prison. Joseph, of course, gets to know them, asks them how they're doing, and he finds out that both of them had had a dream. Oh, if you remember from last week, Joseph is a dreamer. He's been able, he's been given dreams and interprets dreams by the grace of God. So he listens to the dreams of both the baker and the cupbearer. And then Joseph says, well, you want to know what your dreams mean? And of course, they're like, yes, tell us. For the baker, it does not go so well for him. Read about his story. It's a pretty gruesome dream that ends pretty gruesomely as well for him. Does not end so well with the baker. But for the cupbearer, it's great news. Joseph tells him what his dream means. It says, great news. Pharaoh is going to forgive you, and he's going to reinstate you. You're going to be out of prison here shortly. That's exactly what is about to happen. But Joseph has a request, and it doesn't seem like a, an unfair request. It seems like a reasonable request. Here's what he says in Genesis chapter 40, verse 14. After he told the cupbearer, you will be reinstated. Here's what's going to happen based on your dream. Verse 14. But when all goes well with you, Joseph talking to the cupbearer, remember me. Remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. Is that a fair request coming from Joseph? Of course. He goes on to explain. Verse 15. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing, here's this word, to deserve being put in a dungeon. So, Mr. Cutbearer, I've listened to your dream. I've interpreted your dream. It's great news. So remember me. I've done nothing wrong, Mr. Cupbearer, just like you have done nothing wrong. Neither of us deserve to be thrown in jail and forgotten about. Would you please remember me? As your dream comes true, like I told you it would, would you tell Pharaoh about me? You're his cupbearer. You're in the same room with him. You're shoulder to shoulder with him. Would you please tell Pharaoh who I am, that what's been done to me is unjust and what's been done to me is unfair and I don't deserve to be in here. In fact, I could be of use to maybe him and his kingdom. One request from Joseph to the cupbearer, please remember me. Speak to Pharaoh Give kindness to me. And how does it end up? Verse 23, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Limit number four, forgotten. Forgotten. Completely forgotten. 
And this isn't one of those, oh, I forgot to send your birthday card, so it's going to run a little bit late type of forgotten. No, this is completely forgotten. We'll see in a moment. Two years. Two years of being forgotten in prison. Isolated. Dealing with the emotions of being wrongfully imprisoned already. Now being forgotten. When's he going to remember me? When might I get my chance? When, if ever, is this going to end? You see, being forgotten isn't just about being missed. By the time you get to being forgotten, it feels pretty hopeless, doesn't it? No one cares. No one knows. Will this ever end? Will soon turn into, I don't think this will ever end, to pretty sure this will never end. Forgotten. Isolated. Overlooked. Now, your forgotten and my forgotten, the limit of being forgotten, is probably a little bit different than Joseph's being forgotten. But the pain and the difficulty is still the same. Different, but similar. Overlooked for that promotion at work that you feel like you rightfully deserved. Walking into a home and feeling like you're a ghost because no one notices you. Being part of a circle of friends where time after time they disappoint you and you feel overlooked once again. There's plenty of instances where we are forgotten throughout life. Let me go back to that question I asked you earlier. What happens? What is the effect when we have been treated unfairly and we have been forgotten? Think through that. Think how you just tend to want to respond, whether you live that out or not, how you want to respond. Because if you're like me, remember we talked about our need for fairness? When I'm treated unfairly, I want to treat others unfairly. When I'm forgotten, I want others to feel the pain of being forgotten. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, hurt people, what? Hurt people. When I've been hurt, I want others to hurt with me. When I've been treated a certain way, I want others to experience that as well. If I've been treated unfairly, no way you're going to get a fair deal from me. If I've been forgotten, why would I ever go out of my way to remember you? That's what we feel, isn't it? And I have to believe that Joseph felt the same thing, yet he acted different. That's huge, and I want us to figure out why. That we can feel that way, but we don't always choose to live that out. We might feel, but we act differently. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about feelings and behaviors, because these are important. And the order is very important. When feelings come first, and then there's behaviors, super easy. Let me give you a really easy answer, or example here. When I feel hungry, what's my behavior? I what? I eat. Right. Well done. Told you it was easy. When I am tired, when I feel tired, what is my behavior? I go to sleep. Right. When I feel, and then there's a behavior, that is super simple. Because all you're doing is you're acting on your feelings. You're acting on your impulse. You're acting on your emotions. You are doing what you feel like doing. Now let's flip them for a second. It's about to get a little bit more difficult. What do I do even when I don't feel like it? Those lists of things that I told you earlier, the things that I was told to do, get out of bed. I promise I didn't feel like it. But my behavior was get out of bed even though I don't feel like it. Right? And you can start making that to all types of difficulties and how we obey and how we behave in our lives. But that's what we see with Joseph. That's the trend. He chose a behavior regardless of the situation. He chose to obey regardless of the difficulty. He chose to do what was right even when he was wrong. Joseph's story started when he was 17 years old, when he was left for dead and beaten and then eventually sold. 
What was done to him was horrible. Yet Joseph decided that no matter what, no matter what lemons life handed him, no matter what storms he would go through, he would continue to trust God and do what's right, no matter what. And I hope that we can wrestle with that same trend. And here's why. Because you have no idea what that one step of obedience might lead to. You have no idea what that one moment of trusting God and following his ways instead of your feelings, what that might lead to. I said Joseph was 17 with this whole part, when this whole story started. 17 years old, thrown in a pit, left for dead, sold into slavery, finally is looking up, but then he's falsely accused, thrown into prison, forgotten about in prison. If you know the story, eventually Pharaoh has a dream. Like I said, two years after Joseph interpreted the baker and the cupbearer's dream, then the cupbearer finally has a memory of Joseph. Oh, Pharaoh, there's a guy in prison. Kind of forgot about him for a couple years, but he can interpret dreams. Why don't we go get him? Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. Joseph interprets his dream and gives credit to God and does an incredible job of saving not just that nation and kingdom, but the surrounding areas because the dream was telling of a famine that would come soon. Pharaoh was so impressed with Joseph that he put Joseph over the entire land of Egypt. He became the number two. It was Pharaoh, Joseph. Because one step after another, trusted God and obeyed, no matter what. Who would have thought his obedience would have led him to that place? It was over 20 years after he was originally sold into slavery that because of the famine, you can read about this more if you read through the story, because of the famine, Joseph's family shows up to Egypt, not knowing that's where Joseph was. They show up needing help because, once again, of the famine. It's an interesting story of how Joseph interacts with them, but I want to focus on two verses. One I read you last week, but we're going to add to it. Genesis chapter 15, verse 20. This is when Joseph reveals who he is to his brothers and his family. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We said that last week and we focused on the perspective that God's purpose and God's plan prevails, that when we trust him and we follow his ways and his plan and not ours, that God is working and God is moving even when we don't see it. But don't miss this next part because here's what applies for us mainly what we're talking about today. Verse 21, right on the heels of that. So then, don't be afraid. That's a fair statement coming from Joseph to his family, who sold him into slavery, who now he had spent over 20 years away from his family, dealing with all of these difficulties. I'm sure Joseph wanted to do a lot of things to his brothers. But he said, you don't need to be afraid. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. Look at this. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. That fascinates me. All that Joseph had gone through and every step along the way, there's that trend, that theme, trusting God and obeying. I trust you and your purpose and your plan and I'll do what you say. I will trust you, and I'll do the right thing no matter what, no matter the lemon 
matter the limit of disappointment or betrayal, unfair or forgotten. Joseph says, I will continue to do what's right. I will choose what I'm going to do regardless of my feelings. See, it's one thing to say we trust in God. And as believers, if you're a believer, we would say, I trust Jesus. Don't miss the obedience part of that. Remember, I know, I'm with you, we don't like being told what to do, but don't miss it. Obedience is trust in action. We can agree, words are cheap. It would have been easy for Joseph to say, God, I trust you. When he's in the pit, it'd be easy to say, God, I trust you. When he was being sold into slavery, it'd be easy to say, God, I trust you. When he was then falsely accused, it'd be easy to say, God, I trust you. When he was then left and forgotten about in prison, it would say, it'd be easy to say, God, I trust you. What's a whole lot more difficult is saying, I'm going to do what's right regardless. So how did he do that? How did Joseph weather those storms? How did he get through those difficulties, still being able, at the end of it all in chapter 50, still being able to say, I trust God's plan? And I'm still going to act in a way that honors him. I'm still going to obey. And that's going to be part of my trust. That obedience is action to our trust. That idea of trusting but then obeying. That's something Jesus even hits home with. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus gives a lot of, here's how to live. And he spends the rest of his life on earth teaching us those things. Ultimately, his goal was to save us by dying on the cross, by taking away our sins. But there is, there is this opportunity for Jesus to look at us and say, here's how you continue to live out a life that honors me. And he gives a great example, very similar to what we see in Joseph's story, on how to build that kind of life that makes it through the storms. It's difficult, it's not done in a day. Because how do you build a house? What do you do? What's the saying? You build it, what? One brick at a time. Let me give you just a few examples of some bricks. I'm not saying these are all of them by any means, but I think it's a few of them because it fits in with exactly what Jesus encourages us to do. In Matthew chapter seven, this parable that Jesus tells, it tells us how to build a life that doesn't get knocked over every time a difficulty hits us. How to build a life that we can make it through no matter the lemon that life throws at us. He says this, Jesus' words, Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, he says the therefore because he just spent the last many hours, I'm sure, <laughs> telling people how to live. Do this, don't do this. All the things people don't want to hear. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, in other words, you hear them, you trust them, and you also obey them, he says, is like a wise man who built his house on the, do you know it, on the rock. That's right. Jesus goes on to tell the rest of the parable. This wise man that built his house on the rock, on a foundation of rock, the storm came, the rains came, the streams rose and the wind beat against that house, but the house did not fall because it was built on the rock. Here's the flip side of it. He says, now there was also a foolish man that built his house on the, do you know it? The sand. Very different foundation. Built his house on the sand and when the storm came and the rains came and the streams rose and the wind beat, uh, beat against the house, Jesus' words are, the house fell with a great crash. 
something interesting about the context of Jesus telling that story. When in Jesus' day, when people would build a house, they had a choice. They could just build the house right on top of the ground. No extra work. You see the ground, you start building your house. That would be building your house on the sand. If you want to build your house on the rock, it's less about finding where the rock is. It's not about location. It's about digging below the sand. You dig and you dig and you dig and you dig and you dig until you finally hit rock. Now we can build. Jesus is saying, are you going to just start throwing your life together? Are you willing to dig in and find me? And then start building your life once again, one brick at a time. Like I said, let me give you a few bricks. I'm not saying these are all of them by any means. You can spend plenty of time in God's word finding the bricks. What about flee? It's what Joseph did, wasn't it? He took off. The moment temptation came, he literally ran away. There's probably some things that we need to all run away from. Maybe we're making excuses. Maybe we're, well, it's not that bad. We've talked before here that I get used to certain things. No, we are to flee. See, Jesus gives us a lot of do's and don'ts, not to restrict you, not to take away all the fun in life, to protect you, to give you security, to lead you in a way that honors him. So maybe we start building one brick of flee. Prayer. I hope you expected that one. <laughs> I mean, you are in church. You pray. Scripture tells us if we come near to God, he will come near to us. And I don't just mean before dinner time, let's fold our hands and close our eyes. For, no, I mean giving God your time, leaning in and having discussions with him and conversations with him. It's what we're doing here through worship. It's moving our heart towards him. Maybe that next brick for you is, I just need to have some prayer in my life. To build my life on Jesus, on the rock. What are those next bricks? Flee, pray. What about this one? Humble. Being humble. Having humility. Here's the best way I know, the best way I know how to grow in your humility. Stop comparing your life to others and start comparing it to Jesus. Scripture's clear. Jesus came to give his life for you and for me. Philippians says he humbled himself to be that of a servant. So you want to grow in your humility, you watch Jesus and you compare your life with his. Humility says, I can't do this, but he can. Humility says, I can't do this, but I need other people in my life. Humility says, he's the king and I'm not. He's God and I'm not. I'm here to serve. I'm here to give. Jesus, everything you've given to me, I then give back to you and those around me. Maybe your brick is humility. You're not going to like this one. Confession. We don't talk about that one enough. It has a bad reputation. It has a bad connotation. You know what confession really is? Jesus, I need you. It's telling other people, I'm not perfect and I need Jesus too. It's authentic, it's real, it's genuine. We're even told that our prayers are more so heard when we confess our sins to the Lord and to one another. We say, people, I need you in my life. I say, people, I need you to be around me. Maybe there's some temptations you're not strong enough to flee from, so man, let's have some people around us and let's work this out together. 
by no means the last one, but a super important one. Follow Jesus. You follow him with every moment and every day and every step you take. What did Jesus say? Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the what? Rock. The rock is Jesus Christ. If you're building your life on anything or anyone other than Jesus, you will not make it through the storms of life. Period. The lemons, the difficulties, and the storms, it will come tumbling down. Joseph showed us the only way you make it through. Jesus said it multiple times in different ways. You make it through difficulties by building your life on him. And then you begin the rest of your life, building the rest of your life brick by brick, but it's all based on him as the rock. Two questions for you, and then we're going to wrap up. What am I building my life on? And what brick is next? If you're building your life on anything other than Jesus, change that today. Don't wait for the storm. You change it today. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I need a savior. Jesus, I believe with all my heart that you are the son of God and that you died on the cross for my sins. Jesus, I believe that what you did on the cross takes my sins away and gives me the gift of eternal life that begins today. It's not earned and it's not deserved. And let me say this, guess what? The cross is not fair. What you and I deserve, we don't get. He paid our debt. He paid our payment. What brick is next? Like I said, it might be one of these. It might not be one of these. But as you build your life on Jesus, what's next? What brick will you add to your life next? As you build your life on him, whatever difficulties you face, you'll stand through it as you build your house on Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your words. I pray that we listen to them. I pray that we have the desire to obey, not because it's easy and quite honestly, not because we always feel like it, but our obedience and in our obedience, it is not a requirement that we always agree. It doesn't require us to be comfortable and obey. We can trust you and obey in all things whether we agree with it, like it, feel like it or not. Help us to understand the importance of hearing and putting those words into practice. But above all, may we begin building our life on you and nothing else. Any brick built on anything else will eventually fall down. So as we build our life, as we deal with storms and lemons and difficulties, may we build our life on you. We trust you. We follow you. And we will commit to obeying you. In Jesus' name, amen.